I want to be like Richard and Dorothy McMillan when I grow up. How about you? Yeah. Praise God. Let's finish strong. This church has a lot of uh, people with white hair. Praise God. So does mine in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I preach there. I look upon a sea of white. <laughs> a lot of young people too, but uh, same here too. But uh, let's finish strong. And you are. I, I love uh, Luke 16, the shrewd manager who uh, gets fired, but he's not quite fired. Remember? Uh, he's got maybe a day or two to get his accounts in order. And so he, he leverages that waning authority that he has <laughs> into, into something uh, really helpful for him for the, for, for, for the rest of his life. And I see people here, I, I, I think about uh, Elder Pastor Davey and uh, uh, Captain Olson, who, uh, who could have continued on in the Navy, going higher and higher, uh, and instead saying, you know, this is enough, I'm going to leverage the last years of my life in mission to the military. Uh, and there are others, I just talked with a, a lady who said, they, even though they've retired and they don't have the kind of income they used to have, they're still, through budgeting, she said, careful budgeting, still support 10 missionaries on the field personally. Isn't that great? That's shrewd. See, it's shrewd. It's, it's leveraging your final years for gospel fruitfulness instead of just golfing and collecting seashells, right? <laughs> with nothing wrong with that, but you know what I mean. So praise God. Uh, one of the highlights of my time here was having lunch with, uh, with Pastor Brent and the pastoral staff and some of the interns. Uh, and I, I said to myself as I was sitting there with them, you know what, I, I would have a real easy time submitting to the spiritual care uh, and oversight of, of men like this. So if you believe in luck, you, you guys are lucky to have, uh, to have leaders like this in the church. And I think the future is very, very bright for your church. Um, and for the seminary. Acts 1.8, please. As you're turning there, thank you for letting me come. Thank you for bringing me out. I've, uh, as I said yesterday, I admired uh, Brent Belford from afar. Never really got to know him. I've also uh, admired Dan Davey from afar. Never got to know him. And so this is extra special for me. Plus, I love to sit under the preaching and teaching of uh, Dave Doran. So I... Uh, if you believe in luck, I'm a lucky man. Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, maybe some of you are saying right now, yeah, I, I, I've heard this sermon before. He's going to talk about where is your Jerusalem and where is your Judea? Where is your Samaria? Wrong. In fact, I'm going to argue just the opposite, that asking that question too soon, where is your Jerusalem, where is your Samaria, will probably gut this passage of its power and intensity. It's veering off to application when we ought to be first asking the question, what does this verse mean in the context of the Bible? For those of you who are new to the Lord, and don't know what I'm talking about, Jesus says in Acts 1.8 that after, we just read it, after the disciples received the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, they would go on to witness 
about the Lord Jesus and the gospel in an ever-widening circle. Jerusalem, Judea, which is the uh, environs around Jerusalem, and then Samaria, which is the neighboring province, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And so, uh, over the past 30 years or so, teaching on Acts 1-8 has been almost completely hijacked by the idea that the main point of this verse is that every church needs to follow that same pattern of ever-widening circles. And so we at Colonial need to ask ourselves, what is our Jerusalem? So it's this, this, this area here around us. Where is our Judea? Who knows, maybe the greater Norfolk or Virginia Beach area. Our Samaria, maybe Richmond or something like that, and then on to the uttermost parts of the world. And that view has captivated the church to the point that it's almost impossible these days. If you listen to uh, sermons on, on online or something like that, it's very difficult, or blog posts. Uh, it's difficult to find a treatment of this verse that does not almost immediately jump from this text to the question, where is your Jerusalem, where is your Judea, where is your Samaria? As if the main point is, to, is like mission strategy, to show uh, each church in each locale how they must repeat in their generation, what the first church did uh, in Acts 1.8. So it's kind of a mission strategy verse. And that's the way I taught it for years. And it's not wrong to ask that question, by the way. It's just way too soon. Before you can apply a text, and that's what that is, application, you have to know what it, what? Means, yeah. Then you can find out what it means to you. Now here's a thought experiment, and you'll see how crazy this is. Imagine if every time Brent got up here and opened to a verse on the cross, some verse about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. After he read the verse, his first point was, brothers and sisters, where is your Golgotha? What is your cross? As if the cross is all about you. He would never do that. That's what they do in liberal churches because they don't believe in, in, in substitutionary atonement and all that uh, bloody stuff, you know. They, they, that's how they preach it. It's, it's, a, it's an example that we need to follow, see? But that's how I treated Acts 1-8 for so long. And then I read a little article in a little tiny missions journal and God opened my eyes. I found out to my horror that I had once again missed the main point of a verse. And God in his mercy finally, how can we say it, set that verse free from my clever little application or analogy and helped me to see something that took my breath away. And it still takes my breath away. And it will take your breath away. I promise you that you are going to be blown away today by the majesty, wisdom, and trustworthiness of your Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of time, we won't begin reading in Acts 1, verse 1, but we're just going to read once again, verse 8. The disciples have just asked Jesus about when certain things are going to happen, and he's the right one to ask. He's the great prophet. Um, But Jesus says, that that's not the important thing that they need to know. He says this in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what does this verse mean? 
And the first thing to do is to ask a simple question. What kind of sentence do we find in Acts 1a? Is it a commandment? Uh, I was taught that this was a commission years ago when I was going to school. Uh, But is this a commission? Is it a commandment? But when you look at it, you see that the verbs in this sentence are simple future indicatives. You shall do such and such. Now, it's true. When a king utters future indicatives, it could be a command. You shall leave our presence. (laughs) See, that's a command. You better get out of there, right? But, and maybe that's what this is, because Jesus is the king. But look at, look at the first future indicative. You shall what? What's the first one? You shall receive power. Well, you, you, that's, it's passive. You're, you're, you will receive something. It's not something you, that the apostles were going to do, right? Something that was going to be done to them. This is a straight prediction. And so I think that the others are straight predictions as well. And so what we have here in Acts 1.8 is prediction, prophecy. In fact, it's a series of predictions, a series of almost unbelievable predictions that will set the course for the new age. It's remarkable. Now, so if we're going to be faithful to this text, before we do anything else with it, before any application or mission strategy or what is your Jerusalem, we must preach and proclaim and teach Acts 1.8 as prophetic utterance from the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so our first question must be, what did Jesus prophesy? Now, as you look at Christ's prophetic utterance here, you're going to see immediately, if, you're a, a re, if you've read the Old Testament a lot, you're going to see that it fits one of the patterns of Old Testament prophetic utterance. And that is this. Often, the Old Testament prophets would give their listeners both a short-term and a long-term prediction. The short-term prediction might come to pass in the next few minutes. Sometimes that happened, or next few days or months. The long-term prediction, though, would, would, would come to pass maybe uh, 30 years later or 100, sometimes 1,000 years later. This is very common. My favorite example is Jeremiah 28. False prophet Hananiah makes a prophecy in front of everyone. This is right after the first deportation from, from Jerusalem. Uh, and he, here's what he said. And he, he had some guts because it was a very specific prophecy. He said, Within two years, all the people who were recently deported to Babylon will return to Jerusalem, including, this is a big deal, all the vessels of the temple that had been carried away. Then Jeremiah gets up, and after a bit of mockery, he makes it clear that Hananiah has given a false prophecy. And a little while later, he says, here's what's really going to happen. Babylon is going to come and destroy Jerusalem and take King Zedekiah and God's people at as prisoners. That's what's going to happen. And then he says a bit later, uh, a bit later in the, in, in the text, Jeremiah says, not only that, after 70 years of exile, there's going to be a glorious return. All of that is Jeremiah's long-term prediction. And then he says this, by the way, Hananiah, you're going to die. Two months later, Hananiah drops dead. In the same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died, Jeremiah 28, 17. Can we check the short-term prophecy off the list? (laughs) Check it off the list, yeah. 
What about the long-term prophecies? Well, you know they're going to happen because the short-term prophecy happened. And sure enough, (laughs) Babylon does destroy Jerusalem. Israel is exiled, and it does last 70 years, and they do return. But we already knew all that would happen. Why? Hananiah died, just like Jeremiah said he would. And if he hadn't, then who would be the false prophet? Jeremiah would be. Now back to Acts 1.8. I believe that's exactly what the Lord Jesus is doing, giving a very short-term prediction. In fact, it would happen how many days later? Yeah, just 10 days later. And then a very long-term prediction that so far has lasted about 2,000 years. Now let's look at the text and let the prophet speak. Number one, prediction number one. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And by the way, your church's statement of faith just nails this. So I'm really preaching to the choir here. Uh, I'm sure you read the church's uh, doctrinal statement every week. And here it is, section 11, world, let's say it together, (laughs) section 11, world evangelization, point D, listen to this, this this is my first point, (laughs) the strength of the commission is described in Acts 1-8 as reaching the present generation in all corners of the earth by relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this great task. As seen in Acts, this commission is most effective when the Spirit works through the united community of the believers in their local assemblies. The Holy Spirit is the key. So when Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he's simply repeating a prediction that John the Baptist made, that John the Baptist called the baptism in the Holy Spirit which means simply that Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit as a powerful, powerful gift to come and create the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in this case, 10 days from now, um, and, and, and live inside of every believer, make the church of the Lord the temple of God, and every individual believer the temple of God as well. And this prediction is the key to the next three. If this one doesn't happen... You won't get the other three. I mean, think about it. Just think about it. You think the scaredy cat apostles are going to go to Jerusalem and Judea and turn it upside down if the Holy Spirit of power doesn't come into them? You think that's going to happen? You think the racist, I'm I'm just going to call them racists. You think the racist apostles are going to make the effort to reach across huge cultural and racial divides between them and the Samaritans without the Holy Spirit of love and unity ain't going to (laughs) happen. It'd just be another Jonah go to Nineveh story, but this time God would have to prepare 12 huge fish, one for each apostle. (laughs) Do you think that the disciples who came after them, that's us, would be willing to go to the hard places in the world and take the gospel there? Like, like what we just heard a few minutes ago? Do you think, you, would you have gone out without the Holy Spirit of power and grace and love? Wouldn't have worked, would it have? No. The Holy Spirit of God indwelling every believer is the only engine that can drive this stunning plan of God. The Holy Spirit is the only force that can, that, can, that can keep the unity of the church also during, the, dur- during that time. The Holy Spirit 
has to do something new and huge in this new age, or the rest of Acts 1-8 isn't going to happen. Now, I'm not dissing, I'm not dissing what the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament. I praise God for the ceaseless ministry from, I think, the second verse of Genesis uh, chapter 1, all the way to the end of the Old Testament. His ministry is ceaseless, it's powerful, it's beautiful. But this new thing called the church that's going to bring Jews and Gentiles together and, and, and Jews and Samaritans together, see, and then spread all over the world and become one unified family of God, it's not going to happen if the Holy Spirit does the same thing he did in the Old Testament. There's got to be something new. You know, all those predictions in the Old Testament about the Gentiles streaming into the kingdom of God the parables in Matthew 13 about the little seed that's going to grow up in, into, a, in, into a huge uh, tree and all the, all the birds of the earth are going to come and make their nests. That's us, by the way. <laughs> We're making our little nest here in that tree. Uh, all of that, all of those predictions will, will fail to come to pass if the Holy Spirit does the same thing. In the Old Testament, it was mostly come and see. Gentiles, come to Jerusalem and see. Queen of Sheba, come and see. General Naaman, the, 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 the leper, come and see what's happening in Israel. Come to Jerusalem where God's presence is, where God's spirit-filled king, the messianic king is sitting, and where, where God's spirit-filled priests are ministering in the temple, and where God's spirit-filled prophets are preaching. Come to Israel this is the place of God. Come to Israel. We are the people of God. Come and see. Now, fast forward. You don't have to turn there. But fast forward to a very interesting conversation Jesus had in John chapter 4. In fact, I think it's about the deepest conversation, theological conversation, that we have recorded in the New Testament. One of the two deepest conversations. And it was with whom? A Samaritan woman, and not a good one at that. Shocking story. Now, the first part of the conversation is about, guess what? The Holy Spirit, using what metaphor? The metaphor that lent itself immediately to Jesus Christ because he was thirsty, and there was a well there. And the metaphor was what? Water. And Jesus says to her, you know, I can... I, I, I can give you water that, so that you will never thirst again. Now, the Samaritan woman soon brings up a main point of contention between the two religions, and that is location. You all worship in Jerusalem. We worship here uh, near Mount Gerizim. And uh, I don't think she was trying to change the subject. I think it was a real serious and important question that, to, to talk about. It had, had a whole lot to do with historical salvation themes. This lady was sharp. And that's when the Lord drops this bombshell. You ready for this? <laughs> he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father. By the way, did you, know, did you, did you catch that little prediction there? You will worship the Father. Isn't that beautiful? You will worship the Father, Samaritan woman. You will worship the Father. All right, let me get back to, to what, what, he's, what he's saying. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father, here it is. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What? 
<laughs> nor in Jerusalem. What, what about the last 1,500 years of history? Are you God or something? Yes. <laughs> he can say that. He can do that. Jesus is, here's what Jesus is telling Samaritan woman. This, this, is, this has to do with the Holy Spirit. He's saying something so big and so new is going to happen. It will redefine to a large degree what worship of true worship of the Father is and who the worshipers, especially who the worshipers are going to be and how you're going to get to be one of these worshipers. And this redefinition or this, this, this new thing has to do with me and this water I'm going to give. And he says, you won't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. You don't even have to go to Mount Gerizim. It won't be come and see. What will it be? Go and tell. Go and preach. Go and make disciples. And according to John 4, the key to that seismic shift is the water. Who's the water? The Holy Spirit of God. And in this water, I'm going to paraphrase 1 Corinthians 12, 13 here. In this water, Jesus will baptize both Jews and Gentiles and make one church out of them. Of this water, both Jews and Gentiles will drink and drink and drink. And they will be always satisfied. And there will be racial unity. Without the Holy Spirit, it's not going to work. Amen? He's saying to her, I've got some water for you, dear woman. And that water is going to make it so that it doesn't matter if you're in Jerusalem or Samaria or Virginia Beach. He didn't say that, but uh, you could put those words in his mouth. Northeast Cambodia. Because of the Holy Spirit, every city will be the holy city. Every church will be my temple. Every nation chosen. Praise God. Now, that conversation happened in John 4. Now we fast forward again to our text, uh, back to Acts 1.8. It's time to ask the question, did Christ's prediction about uh, the Holy Spirit come true or not? Because if it didn't come true, no need waiting around uh, for the others. You might as well go spend the day at the beach today and forget the whole thing. Because if Jesus can't get this one right, the first one right, he can't get anything right. So, did it happen? Yes, huge. Ten days later, 120 in the upper room receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. There was power, boldness, preaching that cut to the heart. We, read this, uh, we heard this morning, how many got saved that day? 3,000 people crying out to God to save them. The disciples baptizing those 3,000 in water. Jesus baptizing those 3,000 in the Holy Spirit and into the new church, just as he said he would. So can we check it off the list? Can we check it off the list? Check it off the list. He got it right. <laughs> Praise God. Number two, prediction. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea. I'm putting those two together just for sake of time. When you hear the words, you will witness of me in Jerusalem and Judea, you need to hear them through the ears of the apostles. What, 40 days earlier, the most powerful people in Jerusalem murdered Jesus Christ. And where are they now? They're still in Jerusalem or in that area. And they're still powerful and they still hate Christ. And humanly speaking, humanly speaking, the mission to Jerusalem should have ended with 12 more crosses on a hill outside of the city. 
But it didn't. Jesus is saying here, that's not going to happen. They were going to successfully evangelize the city that kills the prophets. That was one of the names Jesus gave the city. And they would even move on to evangelize Judea, the surrounding area, and then to other places as well. God would not let them get snuffed out. God is sovereign. There's always a divine limit to persecution. And he would not allow his enemies to destroy the church and extinguish the flame. I will build my church, we read this morning. Jerusalem will be evangelized. And this was Jesus' prophecy. Now, we have to ask at this point, the question we have to ask is not, where is your Jerusalem? It's not the question to ask. (laughs) We can get there later. But what's the question to ask right now? What is it? Did it happen? I want to know. Now, (laughs) it happened, right? It happened huge. It was beautiful. Now, when I say check it off the list, some people get a little bit worried. They say, well, aren't we still supposed to evangelize Jerusalem and Judea? What do you mean check it off the list? I don't mean check it off the evangelism list. Yes, we need to evangelize every city and every generation. What I mean is check it off what list? The, the, the prophecy list. Because you and I have a responsibility, according to the Old Testament, to check prophecies out, right? We, we, we do. And so that's the list I'm talking about. And did it happen as Jesus said it would, or did it not? Because if it didn't, I'm not waiting around for prediction three and four. I'm going to go find me a Savior I can trust, and you too, right? Well, it happened exactly as Jesus said it would, and we read about that. Thousands coming to Christ in in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. Later, there were churches all over the place in Jerusalem and in Judea. So, can we check it off the list? Check it off the list, and we can read about it. You can read about it later in the book of Acts. Now we come to prediction number three. You will be my witnesses where? In Samaria. Gag. See? Evangelizing Jerusalem is scary, right? Evangelizing Samaria is gross. Lord, don't you know they're not like us? Don't you remember that lady with all the husbands? Remember? They're not good people, Lord. I'm putting words into the disciples' minds. But we know from the rest of the book of Acts that they didn't exactly cover themselves with glory in cross-cultural witness. You you know, God had to force Peter to go meet Cornelius pretty much, right? Uh, And it was Philip who led the mission to the Samaritans, and then later the apostles came and put their stamp of approval on what had already taken place. Do you see, see, brothers and sisters, the impossibility of this first one, I mean, of of this third uh, prophecy, just as it seemed impossible for Jerusalem and Judea to be evangelized? In this case, it was even harder yet, because this was a prediction about the gospel crossing an impossibly wide and deep chasm that had been there how long? Do you know how long Jews and Samaritans hated each other? About 700 years or so, right? Professors, right around there. 700 years. The United States hasn't even been a nation for 700 years or half of 700 years. 
You see, you think our divisions go way back, and they do, and they're deep. But this division was even wider and deeper. Do you see what Jesus was doing? This is a really important point. He wasn't just predicting that Samaria would be successfully evangelized. And that did happen in Acts chapter 8. This is way bigger than just Samaria. The Lord Jesus was predicting that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ would plunge a cross-shaped dagger into the very heart of all racism and all ethnic superiority and put it to death in the church. Amen? You cannot be both a committed racist and a Christian any more than you can be a committed adulterer and a Christian. Church, you are the only true United Nations. The the, the one in New York is a mess, right? You are the true United Nations. And so we pray here at Colonial Baptist Church, God, make our church a colorful church that reflects our community. (coughs) The diversity of culture, the diversity of races, even the diversity of languages. Lord, do that here. We referenced Ephesians this morning. According to Ephesians, a colorful church, a multi-ethnic church, is a testimony to the whole world and to the spirit world of the gospel. And it's kind of a in-your-face, stick-it-to-Satan proof that the gospel is true because it can, do, it can do what nothing else can do, and that is tear down these walls that have been up for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. It takes a lot of power to do that. And only the gospel and the Holy Spirit can provide that power. By the way, as I said yesterday, we will start having a multicultural church when we start having multicultural and multi-ethnic dinner tables. There's a connection. I mean, it, it, you saw it, you see it in Acts 10 with the, the food coming down. You know, there was a connection between that food coming down and those, uh, the Gentiles who would soon come to the door of Peter's house. You can read that story in, in Acts 10. There's a connection between, and and Paul in Galatians chapter 2, remember when uh, Peter uh, quit eating with the Gentiles, he ate with the the Jews in Antioch because of some pressure from the circumcision group, remember that? There's a link between table fellowship and church unity. And I, I adjure you in the name of Jesus Christ to... Just start having multicultural, multi-ethnic dinner at your house. Invite people over. Go to other people's houses. Uh, have, just be a part of just sticking it to Satan and saying, look, look, Satan. The gospel is real. Look at our church. Look at my dinner table. Don't you like to do that to Satan sometimes? You just gotta. <laughs> Let's be that way. So where are we on our checklist? One, the Holy Spirit would come powerfully, check. Two, the city and nation that killed Jesus would be evangelized, check. Three, the Samaritans who used to hate us and we used to hate them will be successfully evangelized. And now, three down, one to go. Prediction number four and to the end of the earth, the farthest away part of the earth. Can we check it off? 
Can we check it off? I see a no and I see a yes. <laughs> Let's vote. <laughs> yeah, but I get every time I preach on this, and I preach on this a lot, I, I get the same response. And I understand those two answers. See, yes, yes, you, you might as well check it off. Because if impossible predictions one and two and three happen, four is going to happen too. And you are proof of that right here. I mean, what does the ends of the earth mean? It means, means remote, right? Doesn't it mean remote? And <laughs> was there any place in the world 2,000 years ago when Jesus made this prediction, was there any place in the world more remote than the land that this church is sitting on right now? The towering trees. <laughs> the Powhatan Indians quietly walking through these forests and crossing these mighty rivers. This place defined remote. 6,000 miles and an ocean away from Jerusalem where Jesus made this prediction. This was remote. Even more remote than where I live in Cambodia. You don't have to cross an ocean to get there, and it's only five time zones away from Israel. You're six or seven. You are remote. Now, this is one of the main problems with the what is our Jerusalem approach. It makes us forget, it leads us to forget that that we in Virginia Beach are out in the middle of nowhere. We're step what? We're step what? We're step four. We're not step one. <laughs> We're not Jerusalem. We're the uttermost parts of the world. We're the Gentiles. We're the nations. And if we keep thinking of us as the center, as Jerusalem, we completely miss the breathtaking fact that this audacious, I think it's the most audacious of all the predictions in the Bible, has almost completely come to pass. And there will soon not be a single place or a single language, single tribe that does not have Christians, that have churches. Soon the glory of God will cover this earth as the waters cover the seas. The gospel will go to every tongue and tribe and nation. And you must speed that on. And some of you have very specific responsibilities. All of you have specific responsibilities. Some of you are going to be sent by this church to speed that on. Do you see the point? Virginia Beach, does Virginia Beach have Christians? Yes. Hawaii, where I grew up, which is literally on the opposite side of the world from uh, Jerusalem, is filled with Christians. Northeast Cambodia has Christians. Papua New Guinea, which as far as hard, hard to get there, may be the remotest place in the world. Christians all over the place. You say, well, what does that mean? Just that Jesus is Lord and God is real and the Bible is trustworthy and every tribe and tongue and nation will come to Christ, and Jesus is coming back, and everything in the word of God is true. That's all it means. <laughs> you see how much is riding on Acts 1.8? <laughs> Everything's riding on Acts 1.8. This is what Acts 1.8 means. And you know what? I'm not going out as a missionary without Acts 1.8. You're not going to send, and you are not going to send your children as sheep among wolves without Acts 1-8. But with Acts 1-8, let's roll. Let's go. Let's do it.
That's what Act 1-8 means. And now we can ask, what does it mean to us? Real quick, three applications. One, it means you better get saved today if you're not saved. This was basically an impossible prediction. Jesus had just been executed by the leaders of his own nation. The disciples were barricading themselves in locked rooms. (laughs) How could this ragtag bunch turn the world upside down? How could this happen? How could Acts 1-8 happen? And yet, it has almost completely come to pass. Listen to me. If you're not saved, if you're wavering, if you're, or you're thinking, about, you're thinking about ditching, and every church has people just contemplating, thinking about losing their faith. History is moving quickly and inexorably toward the conclusion that Jesus predicted and ordained. And you better get on now, or if you're on, you better stay on. You've heard the gospel, that Christ died for you and was buried and rose again from the dead. You've heard it. You know it's true. You know that Jesus is the Son of God. Get on before it's too late. Get saved. Say, Jesus Christ, forgive me of my sins. Save me, please. Number two, it means you can trust a God like this. There are a lot of things that, a lot of of sadnesses. You've just lost one of your most faithful church members, right? Right? What a shock that was. There are people in this room with cancer, with other sicknesses, diseases. you got family problems. There may be divorces in the lives of your children or grandchildren. So much difficulty in this world. But Jesus is utterly trustworthy. Acts 1-8 happened exactly as he said it would. It was very unlikely for these things to happen, but all of it has come to pass. You can trust him. You can trust him in this life. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, it means, here's what it means to us. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go. And it means that when you go, whether it's to a a remote part of Virginia Beach, or a remote part of the world, you know that God is going to give you success. You know how important this kind of assurance is when you go to the hard places to make God famous? You know how important this was to the Macmillans when they went to Africa? And they had no idea what was going to happen. They weren't guaranteed any results except the guarantee that somebody, somebody was going to take the gospel and to, to, the, to, to the peoples of the world. And the peoples of the world would get saved. Wasn't this a comfort to you? Brother McMillan, Sister McMillan, wasn't it a comfort to you to know that Acts 1.8 was, in a sense, guaranteeing your success, and if not yours, the person who would come right after you? And all the wonderful things that God did And all the amazing things that I've seen, I've seen six different people groups come to Christ, 70 churches, all in a matter of around 20 years. (laughs) 
and, and this verse was a great comfort to me when we first went out. And there were still Khmer Rouge soldiers in the, in the, in the, in the forests when we, we went there. But Jesus said, go. We can take risks, risk all to make God famous. Your success is ultimately guaranteed. That's what Acts 1.8 means. I promised you that you would be blown away by the majesty, the wisdom, and trustworthiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus never disappoints. He never fails. God bless you as you seek your part in the greatest prediction in the history of the world. God bless you.